Thank you for listening to the Dear People of Earth podcast. In this episode, we discuss Japan Airlines Flight 1628's encounter with a UFO. We reached out to Dr. Daniel Kum of the Niels Bohr Institute. He wrote a book, Anomaly, a scientific exploration of the UFO phenomenon. We asked him some questions, and what you will learn is nothing short of mind-blowing. No part of this broadcast may be rebroadcast or distributed without express written consent. Thank you. Hey, welcome to another edition of Dear People of Earth podcast. I appreciate you coming on back um, again. Be, uh, before we get started, I'd like to ask you uh, when you get a chance to uh, leave us a review on whichever podcast app you listen on. It makes a big difference. Uh, it helps us with sponsorship and everything else like that. And also, uh, give us a share when you're out there. Tell let people know you're listening. I do appreciate it. Uh, today, we're going to talk about um, a specific occurrence that occurred. Uh, I believe this was the 1980s um, or somewhere around there. I think it was November 17th, 1986. Um, and what I did is I reached out to uh, a gentleman that wrote a book. Uh, and he is a, uh, a theoretical particle physicist, um, incredibly brilliant guy. Um, he took a very deep dive into this incident. Um, he has some pretty fascinating insights uh, as you'll go along and you listen. Um, he wasn't able to do the podcast because he's teaching right now. Um, so he's extremely busy, but he did take some time um, I sent him some some questions, and you'll see that uh, as we go along, it becomes more and more uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, I think you'll find out that uh, what he found out, um, and, and I asked some tough questions of him uh, with regard to, um, you know, could there have been anomalous problems with the data? Could there have problems here or there? And, and he was very forward and open. Um, and I think that you'll find out that what he was able to uh, come up with was pretty much nothing short of extraordinary. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about him first. So he's he obtained his PhD uh, in theoretical particle physics from the University of Glasgow in the UK. Um, he's held research positions in the US and Poland and at the prestigious Niels Bohr Institute in Denmark, where he is now. Um, he's published 14 peer-reviewed research papers on theoretical physics, including articles in world-leading journals such as Physical Review Letters and Classical and Quantum Gravity. Uh, Dr. Kwambe is the author of a graduate-level textbook on quantum gravity. It's called Magnifying Space-Time, How Physics Changes with Scale. He's taught many college-level courses in physics and mathematics, and he's given numerous presentations at international physics conferences. So... The first thing that I had asked him was what he, what initially drew him uh, to investigate the Japan Airlines Flight 1628 case specifically. And that was uh, a case that was, uh, this, this was a cargo plane, it wasn't a, a passenger plane. So his response was, when researching the UFO topic for my book Anomaly, a scientific exploration of the UFO phenomenon, I wanted to find the most reliable cases out there. The goal was to remove human bias and fallibility. The UFO literature is replete with stories of eyewitness testimony, which is often unreliable and unverifiable. So I looked out only those incidents, or I looked up only those incidents with hard data supporting a sighting. 
My mantra became, data doesn't lie. I discovered that the anomalous behavior reported by Japan Airlines 1628 was corroborated by three independent radar systems. One, onboard flight Japan Airlines 1628. From here for, forward, I'll just call it JAL 1628. One, ground-based air traffic control radar in Anchorage. And one, ground-based military radar operated by NORAD. The detection of some kind of anomaly was largely consistent among all three radar systems. So my next question was, can you provide a brief summary of the key events surrounding the JAL 1628 incident? And he replied, on, no on November 17, 1986, Japan Airlines Flight 1628 took off from Paris on its way to Tokyo. JAL 1628 was a cargo flight, and so the only people on board were Captain Tarochi, his co-pilot, and a flight engineer. At 5.11 p.m. local time while flying, flying over Alaska, Captain Terucci claimed to see two lights matching the plane's speed and direction. The object was observed on the radar system aboard JAL 1628. They observed the lights for about seven minutes before radioing air traffic control, in parentheses ATC, in Anchorage to ask if there were any other aircraft in the vicinity. The reply was negative. There were no other known aircraft near JAL 1628. At 5.24 p.m., ATC confirmed a radar hit. A few minutes later, NORAD also confirmed radar returns from an unknown object and moreover confirmed there were no military aircraft in the area. At 5.31 p.m., JAL 1628 reports to ATC the silhouette of a giant UFO behind them. A series of evasive maneuvers then commence in order to avoid a collision with the unknown craft. At 5.40 p.m., ATC offered to scramble military jets to intercept. The offer is declined by the captain. At 5.44 p.m., ATC diverted nearby United Airlines Flight 69 to observe JAL 1628. Nothing unusual was seen. At 5.52 p.m., ATC contacted Totem 71, a military aircraft to check on JAL 1628. Again, nothing unusual was seen. So my next question was, how would you evaluate the reliability of Captain Terucci's testimony? His answer, Captain Terucci, and I could be destroying this gentleman's name, so please, if I am, I, I do apologize, had almost 30 years of flight experience and 10,000 hours of flight time when the incident occurred. He was not fluent in English, and this hindered some of his testimony, especially regarding the color and distance of the lights observed. In the book, I rate the eyewitness test as two out of three, but this also factors in the two other eyewitnesses. Question four. Were there any discrepancies between Captain Terucci's description of the UFO and the radar data? Yes, but it is possible that this is due to the sweep rate of the radar. The particular radar involved could only scan the airspace every 12 seconds, once every 12 seconds, whereas the captain reported the UFO as moving very rapidly around the plane's cockpit, changing position every few seconds. The overall times and approximate positions are consistent between the eyewitness testimony and the radar returns. A few discrepancies in distance and direction were noted in the book, for example, on page 19. And I do, I, I would say, get a copy of this book. It's, it's outstanding. Um, 
Question number five, what are the key pieces of radar evidence that support the existence of an unidentified object or objects? Answer, the radar data indicates that on three separate occasions, the object expeded, ex this is important. I'm gonna re-fix this one here for you. The radar data indicates, now keep in mind, radar data indicates that on three separate occasions, the object exceeded a speed of Mach 300 and an acceleration of close to 10,000 g-forces. Such accelerations far exceed the structural integrity of any known aircraft, let alone the human body. The object also exhibited clear signs of deliberate motion. For example, the concentrated cluster of movement, graphed on page 28 of the book, and the fact that the two lights initially spotted by the captain appeared to mimic the plane's speed and direction. Celestial bodies, for example, meteors, stars, planets, they follow predictable trajectories and they don't change direction. The UFO's flight path reconstructed from the radar data shows 11 jumps exceeding the speed of sound and rapidly changing directions. So we're gonna do a little side note here. So this is me speaking. Um, this is on radar data, and at the end of this podcast, I'm going to give you the ability to find that data yourself. It's out there. Um, you can then look at and see exactly what they saw. And again, there was three radar sweeps. There was one of the plane, one that was another ground based, based in Alaska, and a NORAD. And they all caught this. Number six. Were there any other civilian or military aircraft in the vicinity during the incident that could have been misinterpreted as a UFO? Answer, no. NORAD confirmed no military aircraft in the vicinity, and ATC confirmed, confirmed no civilian aircraft. These statements are recorded in the official FAA transcripts of the communications between JAL 1628, NORAD, and ATC. Furthermore, a civilian aircraft must legally have a radar transponder turned on, which helps air traffic control identify it. No such transponder signal was received from the UFO. Number seven, how did the atmospheric and environmental conditions on that day impact the radar's readings? Answer, historical weather data shows that the conditions were fair, no precipitation at the time of the incident. However, the events occurred during as the sun, this I think he might've messed up the wording there, as the sun was setting, which could cause visibility issues. The region, region is also quite mountainous, which has been proposed as a possible source of radar reflections. However, transcripts from the aircraft traffic controllers suggest that this particular region is not normally susceptible to such an effect. Eight, were there any known radar anomalies or malfunctions reported on the day of the incident? Answer, possibly at least one in the ground-based radar at Anchorage. A split radar effect occurs when the radar pulse returning from the body of the aircraft, in this case, JAL 1628, and the pulse returning from the aircraft transponder are erroneously displayed with a large separation on the radar screen, giving the impression of two objects rather than one. Again, that's called a split radar effect. The idea is that the second blip displayed could have been mistaken for the UFO. This explanation is possible but does not match with all the known facts. For example, the extra, ra the extra radar return did not appear with every sweep of the radar and did not appear with the same separation, which one would expect from such a systematic fault. 
not to mention the fact that the UFO was also observed on the entirely independent radar system run by NORAD and the radar onboard flight JAL 1628. The chances of all three radars would simultaneously have the same type of malfunction are low. So, side note here. You might have a problem on one, but having a problem on all three at the same time, uh, which didn't show that, um, it, it's, it's, I would imagine, I, I don't know the, the, I'm sure he could have actually probably done the, the calculations to determine the uh, probability of that, but I think it's pretty nil. My next question was number nine. How do you interpret the change in the UFO's behavior as described by Captain Terucci during the encounter? So he didn't really have an answer for that. Um, he wasn't sure what what the understanding was there. So he did what I was trying to ascertain, and I didn't get it from him, and that's fine, um, was the, the behavior on the radar, because I knew that there was an anomalous hit on the radar, versus the change in the UFO. So it, it's not a big deal. 10, were there any satellite or ground-based observations that corroborated it? There are no known satellite observations, but the ground-based radars operated by ATC at Anchorage and NORAD corroborate the eyewitness testimony. So I asked again, how would you explain the official FAA findings? And it's the split radar explanation put forward by the FAA is possible, but not plausible. Number 12, were there any specific technical challenges you faced when analyzing the radar data? Answer, yes. The first was knowing what the various terms and numbers presented in the radar data meant. I reached out to Professor Kevin Knuth, who had also studied the JAL 1628 incident, in order to help. However, Professor Knuth had not actually analyzed the radar data itself, but instead analyzed the transcripts. After extensive research, I eventually understood the data and was able to reconstruct the three-dimensional flight paths of JAL 1628 in the UFO. I made various cross-checks of the resulting flight path to be sure it was correct. Number 13. How do the radar readings of JAL 1628 compare to other documented UFO cases? Answer, I struggled to find actual radar data from any publicly available source. In fact, I could only find three cases with corroborative radar returns. The JAL 1628 case, the Aguadilla object case, and the Belgian UFO incident. In the Japan Airlines case, there were some 170 pages of radar data and transcripts, meaning there was a wealth of data available. The radar data indicates an object accelerating at around 10,000 G-forces, which is even higher than the acceleration estimated from the Nimitz incident. Number 14. Were there any witnesses other than the JAL 1628 crew who reported seeing the UFO or a similar phenomenon around the same time and region? Answer, not that I know of. Next question, 15. Have you collaborated with or sought expertise from other aviation or radar experts in your investigation? Answer, no. However, I read and reported on the official transcripts from the air traffic controllers present during the incident. Number 16. So now we're going to start getting into some stuff. In your opinion, are there any natural or man-made phenomena that could explain the radar signatures and visual sightings. Now, I want to reread that because I made sure to put in there natural. In your opinion, are there any natural 
or man-made phenomena that could explain the radar signatures and visual sightings. And remember, this is on three radars. Answer, no. I thought through several possibilities, such as ice crystals in the upper atmosphere, ice crystals in the upper atmosphere, reflecting the radar beams, or Mars and Jupiter being mistaken for a UFO. The former doesn't seem likely as the wavelength used by that particular radar is around 20 centimeters. And for reflection to be significant, the wavelength must be significantly smaller than the size of the object it's bouncing off. Ice crystals much larger than 20 centimeters don't seem very likely. Regarding the latter, I entered the location and time of the incident in a star tracker and worked out that Mars and Jupiter were in a different location to the reported lights. Also, Mars and Jupiter don't reflect radar pulses. That's amazing stuff right there. So number 17, how do you address skeptics who suggest the incident was merely a case of misidentification or optical illusion? So his answer is being skeptical is my default position. So I completely understand where they're coming from. Being skeptical is part of the scientific ethos, but so too is being open to changing one's mind based upon data. I would ask him to look carefully and dispassionately at the available empirical data, just as I did. They may well be very surprised. I added the word very. Number 18. Are there any details from Captain Turucci's account that you find particularly compelling or puzzling? Answer. For puzzling aspects, see question four above. For the compelling aspects, I would say Captain Turucci's experience. He had almost 30 years of flight experience and 10,000 hours of flight time when the incident occurred. So if I go back to number four, um, he's talking about the sweep rate of the radar uh, the, that was involved, could only scan the airspace every, you know, once every 12 seconds. So whereas the captain reported the UFO is moving very rapidly around the plane, changing position every few seconds. Um, so basically it was so fast that the, the data couldn't be caught quite as quickly. Um, but after reviewing and seeing what they could see, or especially what the doctor could see, um, you know, they were able to tell that this thing was moving at 10,000 Gs. That's incredible. So this one here, uh, number 19, based on the radar data, can you estimate the speed and size of the unidentified object? Answer. The radar data indicates that on three separate occasions, the object exceeded a speed of Mach 300 and an acceleration of close to 10,000 G-forces. Such accelerations far exceed the structural integrity of any known aircraft, let alone the human body. Okay, so he can only place a lower bound on the size of the aircraft due to the wavelength of the radar used. Namely, it must have a cross-section significantly larger than 20 centimeters. Um, in chapter four of the book, he did an estimate of the mass of the UFO in a separate incident. Um, so basically what he's saying is it's, it's difficult to tell the size with that type of data. So number um, 21. So what are the most significant unanswered questions? Because number 20 and 21, I, I asked, have you been able to access all relevant data and documents? Or do you believe there's still unreleased information? And then it kind of couples with 21. What are the most significant unanswered questions or mysteries surrounding this case in your view? So, and I'm going to have a link to this, this National Press Club video, 
Um, I'll have a link to this uh, in the in the program notes in in this episode notes. So John Callahan, FAA head of accidents and investigations division chief, has gone on record stating that three men from President Reagan's scientific staff, three CIA members, and three FBI officers met with him and FAA experts following the incidents. After showing them the radar data, Callahan claims one of the CIA members swore everyone in the room to secrecy and declared that the meeting and indeed the incident never occurred. The data was handed over to Reagan's staff. However, Callahan made a copy before doing so. Why the government's interest and why the secrecy? So again, there's there's actually, I believe it's, a, it's the video uh, of Callahan talking uh, during a National Press Club video. So additionally, the radar data, data obtained by NORAD was never released. So here is the next question. I, I, I like to try and get people on record for these types of things. Um, and I know it's a difficult thing because it's, it's a fantastic conclusion, really. I mean, if you're to conclude what is happening, um, it's obviously not one of ours. Um, what, what goes 10,000 G's and, and, you know, that fast? It just, it's, we don't have anything. So based on your research, what is the most likely explanation for the JAL 1628 incident? Answer. That is a hard one. I can only say confidently that the UFO and the JAL 1628 incident is some kind of unmanned, physically tangible object. Beyond that would be pure speculation. So what he's basically saying is he's not going to go on record and say anything other than a UFO. He's not going to go to the next level. And I respect and I understand that. So... I'm, I will. It's not ours. Um, if I go to question 23, have there been any other similar aviation incidents in the region either before or after JAL 1628? Um, not any with publicly available radar data to support them, but Alaska is something of a hotspot for UFO sightings. So next question, how does the JAL 1628 case impact our current understanding of unidentified aerial phenomena? Answer, I think it provides evidence to support the hypothesis that UFOs are real physical objects, since the object, whatever it was, reflected radar pulses from three independent radar systems. Moreover, the radar data indicates accelerations that the human body cannot withstand. If the pilots were human, they would be reduced to a liquid mess on the wall under such extreme accelerations. So. I think the JAL 1628 data suggests that UFOs are autonomous, real, physical objects. The extreme G-forces also far exceed the structural integrity of any known aircraft. And then lastly, I said, can you share any links or references to your calculations, radar data, and other research materials for further study? And it comes back and he says, the ATC radar data is provided by the FAA and is available from the National Archives. And I have the identifier number is, if you want to write this down, 733-667. Local identifier, 1203. 36 references relevance to this case can be found on pages 54 and 55 of my book. Best wishes, Daniel.
So in conclusion, we, we have some very obvious um, issues with acceleration and with speed. And uh, it's consistent now. Now, keep in mind, guys and girls, this is 1986. Um, we had nothing that could even come close to that then and now. Um, and you don't have to take the word of the pilot. Um, you also have radar data. Um, this, in my mind, is one of the best UFO incidents in history, simply because of the data. Not only that, but the people that have taken a look at this are uh, uh, physicists. Um, in in another case, um, Dr. Knuth is a is is also a physicist. He's on uh, the board of UFO X, um, and I've got some more news coming with him. I'm I'm working on a podcast with him about some pretty wild stuff. Um, you know, I, I I've been talking with him actually back and forth, and and one of the things that I asked him quite specifically. Um, I was, I, I try to go and, and try to be, I guess it's, uh, you know, beat around the bush a little bit. I, I try not to uh, go, <laughs> go right to that, to that next layer. Um, but I just, uh, I, I have share with you some, some thoughts that he and I had um, back and forth on email. And these are, these aren't quite um, as put together as the conversation I just had. This is just kind of some of our back and forth. And uh, basically what I said, um, I, I'll give you what I said to him. I said, one of my questions would be, do you feel the accounts you know of and or know of, but maybe can't reveal seem anything humans could make considering some of these eyewitnesses accounts go back millennia it seems well quite unlikely even going back to 2004 those speeds and maneuvers seem highly unlikely i would think that 20 years later nimitz some of those texts would have made it to the public i've spoken with i'm not going to say that person's name um and i take the accounts of I, I have to edit myself here because some of this is private information i should have thought about that uh so I basically said, I take the accounts of these people, um, some of our country's finest at their word. To this day, uh, this person wants to know what it was, um, and then I'll leave it there. Next, it seems the forces present within these crafts maneuvered uh, would need some type of inertial dampener. It would be pretty much it would pretty much shred any airframe. Would that be a logical conclusion? Plus, I can't imagine any biological life forms would fare well at all. And then I, I qualify a little further. I say, I realize the conclusion of calling these extraterrestrial craft is a conclusion most sci scientists are reticent to apply. But what else could it be? I have a hard time believing humans have achieved all of these technical obstacles and beaten them all at once and, and did it a minimum of 20 years ago. What are your thoughts on that? And lastly, and then I, I ask him a personal question. Um, so he comes back. He says, hi, Steve. Yep, I'm a night owl. I, I said that to him a little bit earlier. This was like three in the morning. He said, let me just be upfront. There is absolutely, in large letters, no way that these are human craft. 
The Nimix case alone provides three opportunities to estimate speeds and accelerations. First, the radar observations of these craft dropping from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds gives you a minimum acceleration of at least 5,370 g-forces with a top speed of 46,000 miles per hour. Second, the observations of the Tic Tac racing away to the cap point allow one to estimate an acceleration of 150 g's. Third, the FLIR video allows one to estimate the acceleration of the Tic Tac at the end of the video to 76 g's. It is important to note that our FLIR video estimate is the one that's most in question because that estimate was made assuming the FLIR camera was not moving, which it could have been. But it's inconsequential behavior because that estimate is the smallest acceleration of the three. So what he's trying to say is um, this thing that Mick put out there and, and he's harping on and harping on and harping on that this is this, it's parallax, it's this, it's this. That's the least of the observations. Do you understand what that? That's the least of the observations. So, you know, it, it, one of the other things he goes on to say, it's important to note that this is not new information. Herman Oberth, rocketry pioneer and mentor of Werner von Braun, gave a lecture on UFOs in 1954, and I can place that. I also have a link for that, in which he noted that there exists radar data, over 50 instances tracking these things at speeds on the order of 19 kilometers per second, which is 42,500 miles an hour. It's not far off from the, what is it? Nimitz case. Keep in mind, that was 1954, and I will, I will link that for you. It should be noted that our New Horizons probe that passed Pluto in 2015 is currently traveling at 50,000 miles an hour. So these UFOs are moving at spacecraft speeds through the air. And he, he made that big and bold. Um, and then this is where <laughs> I, I talked to him about this. More recently, uh, Daniel Combo, a physicist from the Niels Bohr Institute in Denmark, looked at the radar data from Japanese 1628. And it was a large UFO. About three 747s in length is, is the, the, the size that they thought. It's about the size of an aircraft carrier. Followed the 747 across Alaska for 45 minutes. Shows that the UFO made several high acceleration maneuvers at more than 10,000 Gs and accelerating, reaching speeds up to 250,000 miles an hour. To put this in perspective, you can get to the moon in 50 minutes at 250,000 miles an hour. Information like this, along with what I've learned about their electric and magnetic fields and luminosities, make it very clear that we are dealing with non-human tech. I hope this answers some of your questions. And then he says, add for podcasts, I'd be delighted to join you. So we're going to talk about that more in depth. And I'm just trying to get a time together because he's also a, a, a professor. So he's he doesn't have a tremendous amount of time. So I'm going to try and uh, find some good time to sit down with him. Um, other things coming up, as I told you, uh, we have a really, really big interview. Uh, this is a direct first-hand witness. Um, I'm recording it this Sunday at 11 a.m. Um, it is going to be a video interview. Um, the upcoming interview with Fernando is also coming up on the orb photo. Um, and then furthermore, uh, I'll be asking for your support. Uh, I'll also be placing a link in this that we are uh, in trying to get to D.C. <clears throat> for the month of January to February, um, as well as Freedom of Information Acts. I need to raise funds for it. There's nothing I can do. It's getting extraordinarily expensive to be able to do it. Um, I have close to 200 Freedom of Information Act um, 
things out there right now and I'm about to put probably another 25 or 30 more out um, trying to work on uh, a schedule for DC and I will tell you that right now I've already talked uh, and we're going to do a live stream with call-in uh, with Steve Bassett. Uh, I'm working on uh, a round table with uh, Burchett, Luna, uh, and Moskowitz. Um, something that you'll be able to call into as well. Um, so I'm working on a lot of things, but I need your support for it. Uh, so I will put that link in the in this episode as well. So that's all I have for right now. Uh, I have some other good stuff coming up very soon, hopefully. I may have um, another podcast out within just a couple of days. So keep looking up in the sky. Thanks very much for joining me. And uh, we'll talk again real soon. Thank you for listening to the Dear People of Earth podcast. All rights are reserved. Don't forget to view the show notes and keep watching the skies. Thank you.